0: Before I start the message, I want to do a little commercial. How many of you know that we have uh, an app? Harmony Vineyard Church has an app. Okay, it looks like this. If you have a smartphone, you can get this. It's free. And it's got a lot of interesting, cool stuff on it. I mean, you you can check out the calendar. So this ties directly into all of our systems. So You can look at our calendar, see what's going on. You can actually fill out a connection card online. That's kind of cool. If you're looking for a small group there's a place for that. There's a place that you can give if you want to donate online. And I will say that if you donate online through this app there is no fee taken out of it. So we would get 100% of whatever you give through this. Uh, There's a Bible app Uh, you can listen to messages. So all of the old messages are cataloged on here. Um, And we post the prayer requests on here too. So it's kind of a one-stop shop for all of your Harmony Vineyard needs. <laughs> so just check it out uh, in whatever app store you subscribe to. You can go there and uh, and just download it, and you will be in business. And so a good way to stay connected with what's going on here. All right, enough of the commercials. Something happened right as we were... Uh, Beginning uh, rehearsal this morning, we discovered that John was having a problem with something, and it was looked at, and, and with the pronouncement came that there was a screw loose. And George, there had been a screw missing or loose from a piece of equipment in the back, and George said, well, it seems to kind of be a trend. And I immediately thought, well, churches tend to take on the characteristics of their pastors. And I have never claimed to not have a screw loose. So, it just sort of makes sense to me that that would be the case. Uh, Never will that be more true than this morning. Now, I also, in addition to having a screw loose, I have sort of a quirky sense of humor. Uh, If you've been attending here for a while, you're probably aware of that. If you haven't, you're in for a treat. Um, And that sense of humor enables me to find certain movies very funny that others may or may not. And the movie that I have in particular mind here is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay, so we seem to have general sense that everyone is sort of like me. So once again, churches are like their pastors, it's sort of holding true here. Um, Now, um, there is a a scene that occurs that that I want us to see since all of you seem to be familiar with it, I probably don't need to do this. But for the sake of those who have never seen the movie, uh, underprivileged as you are, I will, I will uh, enlighten you. And so the movie takes place really in, in England in the Middle Ages, somewhere in the Middle Ages. And one of the very unfortunate characteristics of the Middle Ages was this thing called the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague. And so many people were dying from this that they literally sent carts through the streets um, to pick up the bodies of the dead. Um, I mean, and it was really very sad. Now, we're going to laugh at this in a minute, but the reality of it was was pretty unpleasant because they would then take these, uh, the dead, and take them to large pits generally and burn them. Because for the people at that time, it's the only way they knew of to, to stop the spread of the disease was to get rid of uh, the bodies themselves. So, um, so we have that sort of the historical background for this. Um, it's also important to know that British humor, in um, Monty Python in particular, tends to be somewhat irreverent, which is why you could end up laughing at the bubonic plague. Um, but there is a method to my madness. So we'll watch this and then you'll understand as we go through the message why uh, I chose this particular scene to be in here. So here we go. Bring out your dead <laughs> <There's> one. <laughs> ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. Ooh. I'm not. He isn't. Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to the Robinsons. i have lost nine today. Well, when's your next round? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look, there's no something you... You're not fooling anyone. <laughs> all right. The point of showing this clip uh, is to emphasize, hopefully in a way that you're going to remember, that all of us have a version of this I'm not dead conversation with God. We insist we're not dead. However, in God's word, he says we are. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit today. Okay? Okay. So to begin with, let's do this. Let's sort of imagine ourselves someplace. Um, We're going to go back to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And we hear word on the street is that the Romans are having a crucifixion today. So like everybody else, we want to go see. Let's go see what's going on. There wasn't a lot of entertainment in those days, and so I imagine this was a form of entertainment. It was something to do. And what do we see when we go out there? Well, we see these two thieves and then some guy who was accused of being a political rabble rouser by the Roman authorities. He was uh, uh, an enemy of Caesar, so to speak. And so he's in the middle and these two thieves are on either side of him. And that's what we would see in the scene and temporal realm. Now, we'll review this in a minute, but if you'll remember from last week, we talked about there being two realms the eternal and the unseen, and the temporal and the seen. Okay, so in the temporal, the world we live in, that's what we would see. So you watch for a while, and in the middle of the afternoon, the man in the middle dies. So because we're American, and because we really can't stay riveted to anything for very long, we're going to start to wonder, well, let's go see what else is going on in town. But then something sort of odd happens. It's like a voice inside of you says, that wasn't a political rabble-rouser. That was my son. I'm God the Father. That was God the Son. And he died for your sins. If you will receive that, you will be forgiven. So you hear that and you respond, well, I'll accept that. God's offering me forgiveness of my sins. I'll I'll receive that from him. Now, all of us who have believed in Jesus have had that experience. It's not important to know when it happened exactly. Some that will insist that it is, it's not. I will insist just as vehemently the other direction. It's not important that you know when it happened. It's important that you know that it happened. Okay? You need to be able to say, I know that my sins have been forgiven. Okay? And the only way you can do that is by a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Nothing in our seen and temporal realm, nothing in this physical world tells us that. Nothing else is going to tell you that your sins are forgiven. In fact, it it will tell you that you really don't have any. So when you come to that realization that your sins are forgiven, that's the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go over this diagram again real quickly. If you weren't here with us last week, um, what we talked about was this idea, we just drew this line, and this line is an artificial Boundary, if you will. It doesn't exist. These two realms exist simultaneously and in the same space, but in order to think about them, we think about them separated. So on the top, we have the eternal and the unseen. All right, so that's sort of the, if you want to think of the spirit world, that's what we're talking about up there. The world of that we can't see. We know is around us. We know is part of this world. We just don't see it. And then beneath that, is the scene in the temporal realm. That's the the realm that we live in. That's our earth and the physical, okay? And like I said, the line doesn't really exist, but it helps us to think about it to pu- sort of put it there, okay? So that revelation that your sins are forgiven that's an above the line truth. Okay? That's from the unseen and eternal realm. That's in your spirit. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to your spirit that says your sins are forgiven. That's the only way you can understand that. Now, if we're thinking of this in terms of the resurrection, or excuse me, in terms of the crucifixion, you could refer to that as one one side of the cross. And that side we could call Christ died for you. Okay? Um, And this message that Christ died for our sins is spread all throughout the New Testament. Let's take a look at a couple now. There we go. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's from Colossians 1. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Colossians 2. And then finally, whoops, that's too quick, go back. He himself is the propitiation, big word, it means satisfaction. He himself is the satisfaction for our sins. That's 1 John 2.2. 2. Okay. Now, that's a thrilling thing, right? Just to know that our sins are forgiven and that we now have right standing with God, you know, that's enough to carry us for months after we have that initial decision that we receive Jesus. I mean, you could live on that for a while. My sins are forgiven. But at some point, sooner or later, we're going to encounter another problem. And because the Holy Spirit can teach us really only one thing from this particular event in Jerusalem of Christ dying for us, and it's your sins are forgiven. That's what this event teaches us. That's the basic truth that this one side of the cross contains. But once you're forgiven, you have to start living the life. And then we start to ask, well, how do I live this thing out? How do I get my act together? How do I keep from sinning? How do I make this work? And what we discover is that this wonderful truth that we are forgiven doesn't tell us anything about how to live the life. It addresses a great question, which is, what do I do with my sins? But that's pretty much it. It's got nothing to do with living the life. But this forgiveness of sins, it's the only revelation that I have from God so far. Because remember last week, we talked about how this revelation is a process. Okay, you, you initially hear about Jesus, and, and so the Spirit speaks to you there and so you accept him, and then you get this, I, this revelation that my sins are forgiven, and so you take that, and that takes you for a while, but we're, we're now we're moving on, we're on this journey, because we talk about the spirit life as a journey. So we're on this journey. And so far, at this point, we don't have any revelation yet about how to live the life. So, what do we typically do? We take this one revelation that we have, which is, my sins are forgiven, and we try to stretch it somehow to cover living our life. Okay, you've got to stretch it. And you know how it works. You all have done it. You go out and you try to live the Christian life, but you can't quite pull it off. You know, we'll go out and we sin a little bit or a lot, And then we get forgiven before we go to bed or maybe by the time we get to church on Sunday and all is good. And then the whole thing starts over again. Isn't that the way it is? I mean, be honest. And there's really, at this point, there's no way out of this because we don't have any other revelation yet. All we've got is my sins are forgiven, so we're taking that and we're making the best of it. So then, what happens? Where is our preoccupation in all of this? It's with us, right? And our sins. We're preoccupied with ourselves and our sins. And so, we're still seeing ourselves externally based on our performance. So, we, we have a good day, We don't sin, or we only sin a little bit, and we think, all right, I'm good with God. And then the next day, we don't do so well, and we blow it a few times, and it's like, oh, man, God's mad at me again, and so now, you know, I've got to really try harder tomorrow. And what does that remind you of? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Up and down and up. Because it's all based on our performance. So inside we're really pretty unhappy but we're really good at faking it. So we put on a smile and we go to church and we say I'm fine, are you fine? I'm fine. But we're thinking I'm really miserable but it's Sunday and I can't say that here. Because it's church and everybody's happy. (laughs) Happy, happy, happy. Where's the coffee? (laughs) I need more spirit. More caffeine. That's just the way it is. So after you get over this thrill of being saved and the thrill of having your sins forgiven, you're stuck on this treadmill. And maybe it's worse than being lost. I don't mean actually worse, but it kind of feels like it. Because when you were lost, you were at least comfortably lost. I mean, we were comfortable being lost because that's our nature. We're lost people, so hey, it feels right. Now all of a sudden, we're not so comfortable anymore. And it's actually probably easier to be lost than it is to be saved and to try to live off, I'm forgiven. Striving and striving and striving your utmost to be a good Christian. And you know why this is? It's because I'm forgiven is only half of the gospel. It's a partial, fragmentary view of salvation. So we've got 50% of the gospel, and we go back into the flesh, into our independent self-effort, and just try to make the rest of it happen on our own. We can't, though. We can't make it happen. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. That's actually according to the program. We're programmed for failure when we try to make the Christian life work on our own. It's only going to bring despair. It's going to produce nothing but an inner sense of condemnation. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. God's unhappy with me. And a lot of people actually conclude well, I guess that's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And I've never heard this, but I have heard of pastors tell their churches that um, truly victorious living is only possible when you die. That Christian life is nothing but a struggle. And uh, you're going to experience nothing but going from one defeat to another, and you just try to do the best you can. And doesn't that sound a lot like the abundant life that Jesus promised? No, I don't think so. Well, why Why do we have this discrepancy? Because this first half, all right, that's not right either. There we go. Because the first half of the cross deals only with one issue, and the issue is sins, plural. Christ died on the cross, and our sins are forgiven. Okay? God wipes the slate clean of all offenses, past, present, and future. Anything that we have done or will ever do is forgiven. However, getting our sins forgiven doesn't deal with the question of sin. Singular. Now, sins, plural, are the product of what the Bible says dwells within us. Sin. Singular. Okay, Sin is a power or a force that is in rebellion to God and produces sins as its fruit. And as long as sin dwells in the center of our being, it's going to produce sins. Now we can get them forgiven, but that doesn't deal with with the source of the sins. So, once again, we're on the treadmill. We sin, we get forgiven, we sin, we get forgiven, we sin, we get forgiven, over and over and over again. But we read the Bible and we think that one day sin won't dog us anymore causing us to do what we don't really want to do. Because we can see right there in Scripture that God promises abundant life and how we can have victory over sin. Okay, so we read this, but then we go, well, I'm not really experiencing that. So we come to no other conclusion except to think, well, Something else must have to happen um, before I'm actually going to experience this abundant life thing. And we conclude that the event that has to happen is that we have to die. We tell ourselves that once we physically die, we're going to move into that unseen and eternal realm. Remember at the top, that's the spirit realm and everything will be okay. I was just thinking about this. How many times have we heard the song Victory in Jesus played at a funeral? Never? Okay, well, I have on a number of occasions. And it's kind of ironic when you think about this because the implication is that the person finally has victory. So what do we do? Well, we've got all these promises of God. We're not really sure what to do with them. So we just push them all up, upstairs, right, up into the eternal and the unseen realm. And we tell ourselves, well, this whole thing is not going to end. It's not going to get any better until I die. When I finally get to join this unseen and eternal realm, everything will be great. But the funny thing to all this, is that if you read those promises in scripture, you realize that none of them apply to the future. Every one of them is supposed to apply to your life now. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. Not will find their yes. Find their yes. God never intended for us to relegate those promises of the abundant life to the unseen and eternal realm, to the future. He means for us to experience them now. In all of this, we have been right about one thing, though. That the only way to experience these things is to die. That is true. When you die, you'll finally be free from them. But the issue here is when. Did you die? And the truth is that you actually died much earlier than you think you did. We're all waiting for something to happen in the unseen and eternal realm that's already happened to you. Let's go back to our illustration. So here we are 2,000 years ago. We're standing outside in Jerusalem and we're present at a crucifixion. Now when we had been there before, the Holy Spirit had told us that this man in the center was God's son and that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. But now all of a sudden our illustration changes. And suddenly we're transported up off the ground and into the body of Jesus himself. We're no longer observers of something that he is doing for us. We are now actually participating with him in this event. We are being crucified with him, and when he dies, we die with him. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in the 6th chapter of Romans. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Now, a lot of us, when we read this passage, might look at it a little wrongly. I'm not going to say wrong, but maybe with the, you can get the wrong impression from it. See, we see that word baptize, and we immediately start to think of a pool of water. But in the Greek... The word is "baptizo," and it doesn't—it didn't mean in the Greek exactly the same thing that it means to us in the English. It just simply meant to immerse or to place something into. Okay. But rather than translate the word directly into uh, from the Greek into the English, the Bible translators just turned the Greek word into an English word. And so baptizo becomes baptize. And whenever we say baptize or we think of baptize, we think of a ceremony that has water involved. But we would get a much clearer meaning of what this passage is saying if we just left it as, the, as what the original Greek word meant. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus have been immersed into his death? There's no water there. Paul is saying that we were immersed into Christ. We went into him. He swallowed us up. Why? he died and whatever happened to Jesus on the cross happened to whoever was immersed in him and we all were there we were with him on the cross experiencing what he experienced so that when he died we died when he was raised we were raised. Now, baptism is very much, very clearly, and you can, I mean, you can look at that passage and you can get baptism out of it. There's no question. Because baptism is, a, um, is symbolic of this very transaction, right? We go down into the water. We're submerged. Our old man dies. We are then resurrected and we come up. And so to emphasize the point, Paul even says that we were buried with him. Well, when you bury somebody, what does it mean? It means they're dead. Life is over. Whatever they were is gone. So the question that we've got to answer then is well, what died with Christ? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like I died with him. Do I look dead? Here I am, alive and well, in Ashland, Virginia, Sunday, March the 19th. And then there's the idea that Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Well, so here I am now, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died. It doesn't seem to make sense. It's what causes you and me to be just like that old man and go around and say, I'm not dead. Don't be such a baby. <laughs> and the answer is in Romans 6 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your old man, the one you inherited from good old Adam, is the one that cut you off from God but made you alive to the power of sin. That's who was crucified. With Jesus. And there was a life that flowed out of that old band. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 speaks of it. And I'm not going to show you, but I'll just read it. And you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. And so the source of that life had to die. That's, you can't put a band-aid on it. It had to be cut off. If any of you garden you've probably had to encounter dandelions and you know that the one way to not get rid of dandelions is just to break them off at the surface. If you do that they're going to be back as quick as you can go inside and come back out again it seems like. You gotta pull them out by the root and if you you know, if you've seen dandelion roots they're pretty darn long. And if you don't get them out by the root, they're just going to keep coming back. And that's exactly what God had to do to our old man. He had to cut it off at the root. Otherwise, it's going to continue to produce the sinful fruit that the sin nature just does. So God crucified you with Christ. And hundreds of years before Jesus came, Ezekiel had a prophecy. And it said this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. God removed that old human spirit, gave us a new human spirit that was born of him, and then put his spirit in there too. And so in the very depths of our being, we are entirely new creatures. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we aren't any longer. We were sons and daughters of disobedience, but we aren't any longer. We were all expressing the desires of our spiritual father, Satan, but he is our father no longer. We were children of wrath, but we are no longer. So how How could we have been crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago? Because we weren't crucified in the seen and temporal realm. We were crucified in the realm of the Spirit. Once again, remember the line. We said, in that unseen and eternal realm, Time has no meaning. Everything is now. That's why Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. See, in the seen and temporal realm, below the line, he was the lamb slain 2,000 years ago. But in the unseen and the eternal, he's always been the Lamb who was slain. In the seen, in the temporal realm, you and I live physically right now. But in the unseen and the eternal realm, you and I were crucified with Christ. And our old man, the one we inherited from Adam, the one who was dead and separated from God, died with Him. That's the other side of the cross. One side, Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. The other side, our old sin nature died with Him. You could think of it as a double cross. The first is the blood side. That's where Jesus died for us. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And the second side is the body side. We were united with him on the cross, participating in his death, burial, and resurrection. The old man was crucified with him, and the new man was resurrected with him. I like to think that the double cross is an eternal gift that mandates a temporal shift. Ooh, that sounds cool, but what the heck does it mean? I don't know, I just thought it sounded nice. No, really. It's an eternal gift because we had nothing to do with it except to receive it by faith that this is what Jesus did. God, in the unseen and the eternal realm, because of his unending grace, his unending love and mercy, forgives our sins and kills off the old sin-filled man. But the double cross also mandates a temporal shift, meaning a shift in the -the below-the-line reality. See, in the scene and temporal realm, you need to shift your thinking from that of a slave to that of a son or daughter. In the scene in the temporal realm, you have to shift your motivation from trying to please man to trying to please God alone. In the scene in the temporal realm, it shifts you from I'm not dead to I died with Jesus. In the scene in temporal, it shifts your inward gaze from yourself to God. Now, we don't feel dead. We don't look dead. Most of you, anyway. It's a couple are awake. And we often don't act dead. Typically, we say, I'm not dead. I think I'll go for a walk. But at some point, the Holy Spirit shows up. And just like Toto in The Wizard of Oz, he pulls back that curtain. And he shows us that in the very deepest part of us, in our spirit, down where we truly are, a death has occurred that forever changed us. You see, how many, many days, we're going to look the same we're going to feel the same and we're going to think the same. But we're also going to know something. And what we know is that we're not the same. In the unseen in eternal realm there's an exchange that's taken place. And it's taken place in our spirit. And once we can get a hold of that, it produces through us a quality of life that is different from anything else. Anything else the world has ever seen. It's light in the darkness. It's other love in a world of self love. It's desirable. and it's in you. Do you believe it? doing music if you want to come back up what the, the sense that I got as I was putting this message together and keep in mind too that these messages all sort of build on one another. So you know if you missed the one last week and you want to listen to that it's Get the app; it's right there. You can go to the website, get it that way. But you know, if that that might help, if you you know, if this isn't clear. But then next week we're going to take it a little bit further, and then the next week a little bit further. Because what I what my heart's desire in this, my goal in in, in this particular sermon series, in this message, is that. What, up to this point, has been information to you? See, this, at its, um, at its least, is a book, right? It's got pages, it's got words and sentences and thoughts and stories and wise sayings in all sorts of things, it's filled with information. Pretty much any piece of information you need to live well in this world, you could find in here. It has words of comfort when you're in a time of sorrow. It has wise words when you need advice. They're all here. but we need to make that information become revelation right because until god reveals to you what these words what this information really says you're going to still you're going to stay on that treadmill and you're going to keep wondering how do i get off and so what i want to do today Is, um now there are, I mean a lot of you are nodding as I'm going through this so uh, you know I suspect not the first time you've heard this maybe it's a little bit different than the way you heard it before uh, but you you know it okay you know the information do you have the revelation if you don't have the revelation then I want to you to come up and get prayer I can't give it to you I can pray for you God is the one who reveals his truth has been preached today but it's just information unless he reveals to you the ultimate truth that's behind it So I would ask those who uh, have been released to pray, if you would come forward. And if, if you need this to be revealed to you, then we're going to pray that that's exactly what happens today. Because I think that Easter Sunday could be an absolute blowout here if all of us got the revelation of what that day really means. Of what happened not just to Jesus, but to you. It's a transformation, but we don't live like it. And I want us all to live like it. Let's play victory in Jesus on Easter Sunday, not at your funerals. too late we'll all sing it for you but I'd rather let's put it this way play it at your funeral because it was the song of your life because you really finally understood that you've got victory in Jesus and it's not just victory over you know the fact that your sins have been forgiven it's because you actually could live the abundant life that's in this book that this talks about. We really are doing Jesus a big disservice by thinking it's not doesn't going to happen until he's like, oh, why did I do all that? Not really. But you understand where my heart is coming from in this, right? Even if my words are somewhat clumsy. So let's pray. Father, oh, Father. Father, we can read these words over and over and over again. And we can know that they are true. We can believe that they're true. But Lord, we need you to reveal to us what that truth means for each of us personally. And so Lord, I just pray that right now your Holy Spirit comes. If you would, let's stand. And just posture yourself in, in a way that you can receive, whatever that's like for you. you. know, For a lot of people, it helps if you sort of hold your hands out in a, in a position of saying, Lord, I will take what you give to me. So if that works for you, great. If that's uncomfortable, then that's fine. So Father, I just ask right now that you would reveal To these your people, the reality of your word, of what your word says, and the fact that we are, our sins have not only been forgiven, but that we are dead to sin, that that nature has been removed from us. And then show us, Lord God, how to live out of that reality. Because that's where the abundant life is. So come now, Holy Spirit. Just come in touch. Let each person know that they know the truth. And you can stay right there. You can come and get prayer from someone. Or you're free to go. It's all up to you. So Father, I just bless your people. I just thank you for each one that you brought here today. Touch them in, in whatever posture they take, whether they choose to stay, whether they have to leave. For we know that it doesn't have to be here. It can be in the car, on the way home, it can be doing something later this afternoon that's completely unrelated to church and all of a sudden the revelation hits you. So just bless them, Lord. Speak to them. Thank you for them and I ask that you would uh, bless each one with a wonderful week and with ever more increasing revelation of your truth. Give you thanks. And I ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.